would you like to know? Well, you should listen. Zoom, Cron, Week in Review. Listen closely. Zoom, Cron, it's gonna help you. Then think for yourself. What the hell happens? I'm gonna tell you. From my perspective. In the Zoom Cron. In Zoom Cron. Week in, in review. review. Right now. Here's an independent journalist, Travis William Skink Matier. Hello and welcome to ZoomCron Week in Review. I'm your host, Travis William Skink Matier. And oh boy, do we have quite a doozy for this uh, potentially final review of the week's events here in ZoomTown, which of course is Missoula, Montana. For those of you following along at the blog, ZoomCron.com, that's Z-O-O-M-C-H-R-O-N. And if you have been following along, you might be picking up on the immense challenges I'm having to continue doing this local journalism work. Everything that I write and everything that I say currently is being closely scrutinized by someone with lots of power over me right now. So um, this week, uh, one of the things that I did was I went to the Bitterroot. Yes, I drove down to the Bitterroot, wanted to say hi to a friend who had to move to the Bitterroot herself. Uh, to get a new start, because lots of people around the country are needing new starts. Uh, They're going through tough times. They're doing things like getting divorces, like what I'm doing. Um, Not fun. Not fun at all. So to add an additional cloud of legal stress over my entire efforts as a local journalist is a bit intolerable. And I'm trying to reframe this for myself as an opportunity. So I will be leaving here very soon. By the time this posts, I will no longer be in Missoula, Montana. Nope, I will be elsewhere. And I'm putting myself on assignment to get some questions answered and to look into Sean Stevenson's life before he came to Missoula, Montana to be euthanized, ultimately, by the Missoula County Sheriff's Office in a private hospital room at St. Pat's. Well, before we get into all of that, uh, let's start with August 14th. That was Monday, and that's the first day that I posted something this week, because that's what I do. Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. at ZoomCron. The title of this one, what this man is sharing is serious, and where this is going is not good. So, the previous week ended, if you recall, with a crazy-ass standoff in Mineral County. A man by the name of Jedediah Gordon Schultz... uh, who knows what happened exactly before the video, but from what I understand now, talking to some people in Mineral County, it was a three-hour standoff with multiple Mineral County uh, sheriff deputies. Missoula SWAT nearly was called in. I don't think Missoula SWAT actually did come in, but Jedediah Gordon Schultz used his mouth and his brain to hold off Mineral County and to get them to leave. So he was able to uh, point out that they had no art articulated interest or no articulated reason to be asking him to leave his Tesla vehicle, which later he described the weapon that he could turn his Tesla into, which was a bit disturbing, as is pretty much everything with this case. And so um, the video, which you have to go to his YouTube channel to actually see, since he changed 
um, the ability for me to embed it in my own blog post. Um, yeah, go, you can go check it out if you want. I am staying far, far away from this bullshit. Um, and so Jedediah Gordon Schultz, uh, he wants to run for state representative. He came here from California, um, even though he claims to be a Montana boy, um, because of something happening with his uh, kid. His kid was taken from him. Um, there's some information from a commenter put in one of the blog posts. Uh, of course, Jedediah anticipated this. He knew that character assassination was one of the things the communist assets were going to do to him. Uh, who knows? Ultimately, I got more shit going on. Uh, I'm not going to get more involved than I have to in this. The, the main interest, of course, was the fact that Mineral County engaged this man. And the fact that Mineral County has gone through a legal process called the writ of mandamus means that I'm very interested about things that happen in Mineral County. And I will continue to be, especially as dead bodies show up there, you know, from time to time. Joy Thompson, uh, Rebecca Barsati, you know, people like that. So... You can go check out that first post of the week if you want. I also mentioned uh, Mr. Stamper. Poor Shane. I've known Shane for, for quite a while, and he's been in and out of jail. Allegedly, um, he has been burglarizing and, and going into the garage of someone in East Missoula, and so they kind of had enough, and now he's facing a felony burglary charge. But I actually put Shane's picture out there because in my conversations with him on the streets, um, he's told me about his concern about a, a kid of his who he thinks is being trafficked or has at least disappeared within the system. Uh, his previous partner, he told me, was a meth dealer herself. So um, I tend to actually sometimes believe the things that people say, even if they are on drugs like meth and acting a bit fucking crazy. So I hope Shane gets the help he needs. Unfortunately, in Missoula, Montana, I know that he won't because we don't have that kind of help. Um, okay, the next post we got, this one, uh, we didn't have any double posting days, so we only five posts to go through. This next one, August 15th, on what we leave behind. So um, this is the post that I'm probably getting the most heat from in terms of what I'm able to write about and what I'm not able to write about. Again, as a gonzo journalist who writes about himself a lot in terms of what is uh, happening, uh, I put myself pretty central in a lot of the narratives that I am developing and putting out there for you to read and listen to. Makes it very hard when I'm not sure what my new censor is going to, uh, to interpret as harassment. So... In the police phone call, I got a friendly, you know, police phone call. Maybe I can play that call later. Um, probably not. But it was a friendly call just warning me that both direct and indirect references could get me arrested for harassment. That, that's because it would be a violation of the order of protection, which is amazing to me. It's amazing to me that I walked into a courtroom without representation, begged the judge who knew the petitioner and said so, even though I objected, that meant nothing. I begged the judge for a postponement because I had no legal representation. Um, wasn't able to find a lawyer and still haven't been able to find a lawyer in the entire region of the western part of the state of Montana to take my case. So uh, the fact she has a legal background, knows a lot of people in the legal community, um, it just gets more fun for me. Let's just put it that way. So on what we leave behind, I put some pictures of a statue, Captain John Mullen, pretty well-known guy for blazing a trail through the Northwest. Also, there's a little bit of writing on his legs, and so I broke that down, ACAB. I'm pretty sure that means all cops are bastards. Um, so, and then poetry, of course, poetry. This song might actually be the song I put at the end if I can't get a, a new song created in time. Um, but it is a, it's a pretty fun song. It's the poet and the journalist. And actually later in the, in the review, I have another song about being a white guy. That's right. So you can listen to that. 
Um, you can also take a look at the letter that I received. So part of the risks that I have taken on, um, both trying to help out my petitioner in her case. Yeah, yeah, I helped her out a little bit. Um, and then, you know, trying to get answers for families that are dealing with just unbelievable bullshit within the criminal justice system. I received a letter and the letter read, you are one evil motherfucker and seriously mentally ill and a danger to anybody around you. Get help now. You belong in Warm Springs for a long, long time. I received that anonymous letter um, from some punk ass who sent it to the house where I no longer live so that um, my soon-to-be ex-wife could look at it and wonder what the fuck is going on. Cool, guys. Real cool. I, you can't see me, but I'm holding up a thumb right now. It's, it's a thumbs up gesture. Cool, guys. So I, I made sure to include a picture of that letter that I, I received just as a little reminder um, that I am taking on risks as I get paid zero dollars to do local independent journalism exposing local corruption. So um, just wanted to kind of lay that out there. I remember when my petitioner and I and I put this in the post, we were discussing who may have sent me this threatening letter. One of the ideas was her boss, Susan Haypatrick. So once upon a time, my petitioner worked at United Way. Uh, and she actually drove Susan Haypatrick around quite a lot. Susan liked to use her like a personal chauffeur. Um, driving Miss Daisy, I think, was the reference that came up a few times. Um, there's a lot more associations that my petitioner has with uh, political people. But we're not going to get into all that. We're going to save that for the dead man switch that's going to be scheduled early next year. And we'll post. It will post if something happens to me while I'm gone. You hear that, motherfuckers? That's right. Okay, uh, another sad thing to report is that the most dangerous woman in Montana, Jane Rechtenwald, uh, suffered a very serious stroke last week, uh, I believe it was last Thursday, um, and is no longer able to use her language. Um, so she is nodding and, and having some responses, so there is still some Jane there, but um, not sure on what kind of prospects she has for recovering any kind of use of language. Um, but for someone that has been using her language quite effectively, um, to bring attention to what she thinks is some serious problems with our electoral system here in Montana, because guess what? There are serious problems with our electoral system here in Montana. There are, even though everyone denies it from Republicans to Democrats. It's like a uniting bipartisan issue to tell people like Jane Rechtenwald she's fucking crazy. Well, you're not going to need to do that anymore since Jane is now no longer able to speak. So um, very sad. I am able to speak and will continue to do so in many different ways. Moving along, Chinakilo. We're not there quite yet, but that's a that's a last name, Chinakilo. You might want to remember that name. The name of the t the title of the post. Don't worry, Mister Freedom. Your secret is safe with me. That's right. On my first child's birthday, August sixteenth, we have a post going to the the topic of what the fuck might be going on in Mineral County and who's Ty Freedom making all these comments on social media. Uh, I have a pretty good idea who Ty Freedom is. Uh, it's one of two people, but Ty Freedom's secret is safe with me. We do go through quite a lot of interesting information. Um, Ty Freedom has been making some comments to me in response to some things I've said on social media. And then someone, excuse me, someone else, another anonymous account by the name of um, Tanner Gray Sucks has made some comments on a Joey Thompson post. So I start putting some things together, little data points. Maybe there are connections, maybe they're not. But one of the things I am now greatly, greatly alarmed about is that I've heard from two sources that Case um, in Knopp, the kid that uh, allegedly was one of the last people around Joey Thompson the night he disappeared, I've heard that Case in Knopp sells guns to teenagers. That's been from two sources now. One person whose child was sold a gun, 
And that is not good if that is happening. So Kaysen allegedly shaved his head, erased a bunch of Instagram posts, and then fled to Superior, Montana after Joey went missing. Um, I would like to know more about what happened to Joey. I do have information that I haven't shared yet, and I have tried to get in touch with the authorities, but they don't call me back. It's really sad. Chinakilo. Now, that's an interesting last name. Chinakilo and a growing Russian influence here in western Montana is something I will be writing about. It might not be on the blog. Maybe it'll be part of the book, but very, very important to consider as America collapses in slow motion before our very eyes. Um, so that law and order stuff that we've really just kind of taken for granted, as that slowly goes away, what fills the vacuum? Some people I've been speaking with locally think it could be a Russian presence that has been growing, especially in places like Hot Springs, Montana, where there was an effort to purchase Siam's Hot Springs a couple years ago. For some ideological background, I take this Russian idea and I talk about Alexander Dugin. I'm familiar with Alexander Dugin because of a book called Dark Star Rising, Magic and Power in the Age of Trump, written by Gary Lackman. Gary Lackman used to be the drummer for Blondie. Interesting, huh? Read the book. Very fascinating. Chaos magic is real. Magic magic is real. Um, that's magic with a K, not the kind of stage magic, you know, that's done. Rabbit coming out of the hat, you know, just kind of misdirection. Real magic actually exists. Yeah, it kind of sounds weird and crazy, but we haven't gotten to the Barbie post yet. So when you look at a book like Dark Star Rising and you look like or you look at a person like Alexander Dugan, Dugan is sort of like a, a Dick Cheney. They don't have any actual ideology. They change like chameleons because maybe they are reptilians, but they change from one ideology to another, just kind of whatever the times recommend for them to, to fit. But Alexander Dugan now is a very interesting and influential figure, pretty high up there, pals with Putin, allegedly, and his daughter was killed in a uh, car bomb allegedly by Ukrainian efforts last year, I believe. Um, so I, I have a nice little quote about Dugan, and the I'll read just a, a quick part of it. Um, this is a quote from Dark Star Rising. In The Great War of the Continents, written in the early 90s, Dugan talked about an idea that would occupy him for the rest of his career. Fundamentally, it argues that with the end of the Cold War, the tensions between the East and the West have not ended, but merely changed their form. What used to be the struggle between capitalism and communism now exists as a struggle between land-based and seafaring powers between Russia and the West. So I also have a link. Um, if you look at the homegrown strains of white extremism link, that goes to a post where I put a picture out of David Barsotti hanging at a storage facility with Stephen Barry. Stephen Barry is a well-known guy within the, the sort of Aryan Brotherhood community. Um, has his own Southern Poverty Law Center profile, and, you know, just happened to have some literature that he wrote or was responsible for, found in the van when Timothy McVeigh was arrested. <laughs> yeah, so that's some kind of serious shit for a serious review of a serious week. Okay, so moving on, you can go read more at Zoomcron if you want. Moving on, the white guy poem comes, because, comes from a post um, about a irritable metis. And stupidly dangerous homeless ideas. I was very, very triggered on Wednesday, and I wrote this post then for the following day, the 17th, because first I see that Chris Latre, well, he's Montana's new poet laureate. He got a phone call from Greg Gianforte. I think that's fucking hilarious because not too long ago, Chris Latre was saying the incoming governor of Montana is a creation mu museum guy. People here are dumb. 
That's right. That was an actual tweet that he put out. Um, he thinks that people in Montana are fucking stupid and that uh, it's fun just to kind of make fun of the governor. But then if he gets the call from the governor, you better believe he's going to be like, oh, thanks, Gov. I can't wait to be the poet laureate. What's his mission going to impart entail? <laughs> yeah, I'll read from the NBC Montana link. Latre's intention as Montana's next poet laureate is to bring writing and poetry to rural parts of Montana. <laughs> Reservation communities and tribal colleges around the state, as well as into prisons. Oh, good on you, Chris Latre. Um, as an irritable metis, I think you might want to dial down that irritability if you are representing poetry across the state, officially through the the government. So, um, pretty pretty hilarious. The way that I start writing this post is, it's like this. While I tell random paramedics at a sandwich shop the story of a black man euthanized in a private hospital room by the Missoula County Sheriff's Office, the man pictured above, Chris Latre, just took over the Montana laureate position from Mark Gibbons. Congratulations, Latre. I'm sure the phone call you got from the governor was delightful. That's how I started the post. And then I ended the post with my own song. That's right. I mean, maybe I can just read the poem to you really quick. I'll just do that right now. I'll read you the poem. All right. This is my white guy poem. <clears throat> Can you feel my suburb? It's white and it's smooth. Add a central pillar. What have I to prove? Twisty turny street design with cul-de-sac dead ends. Gen X went to rave downtown and sometimes had black friends. Returning home to safety, my suburb loved black lights. And entering garages left open overnight. No, they never shot me. God designed my skin to once upon a time. Guarantee a win. Now I must report. My winning streak is done. Nay, no victim card to play. I see my setting sun. But where is my loyal horse? And where's my cowboy hat? Her western dress is not the best. Painted brains go splat. Oh, don't be so dramatic. Western man is fine, as long as Donnie Darko travels back in time. <laughs> yeah, I have a nice little notepad in the, in the image that I took for that post of a sad-looking rabbit looking at his dwindling coins. I actually got that at Loose Moose. It was uh, made by one of the owners, and it's very, very nice to be able to to have some local support as I do my own poetry thing, because I did go to the University of Montana for creative writing. Uh, do I sound a little bitter that I'm not a more important poet here in, in Montana? Well, I'm trying not to be a angry, bitter guy, but there might be just a tinge of like, why not me, guys? Anyways, let's continue going on before I start uh, taking out the violin and playing a sad, sad song. I, I don't play the violin. Moving to the Friday post. Now, this is the fun one. I was happy to end the week with something about Barbie. I'm also happy that the people in, at the Antique Mall know me very well. So when I come up with a bunch of weird things, or they look at me like I have a Barbie doll and, uh, and some other things. And they just kind of look at me like, okay, Travis, we're not going to even ask. And, uh, and I'm glad they don't because I didn't want to have to explain to them uh, that Barbie actually started her life as a German sex doll. That's right. I got this notion from Chris Knowles at The Secret Sun. He likes to put things into a sort of a cult context that is fucking crazy, but it just might be true because the elite, they're fucking crazy. So you should check out his post. There's a link to The Secret Sun blog, and you can also uh, read a, an official like mainstream article about 
Barbie, the high-end German call girl. Back then, she was Lily. That could be kind of short for Lilith if you're getting into the occult interpretation of this kind of crap. Um, but let me read the little blurb from the article that I linked to. So it turns out Barbie's original design was based on a German adult gag gift escort doll named Lily. That's right. She wasn't a dentist or a surgeon, an Olympian gymnast, a pet stylist, or an ambassador for world peace, and she certainly wasn't a toy for little girls, dot, dot, dot. Unbeknownst to, mo unbeknownst to most, Barbie actually started out life in the late 1940s as a German cartoon character created by artist Reinhard Buthien for the Hamburg-based tabloid Bild Zintung. The comic strip character was known as Bill Lilly, a post-war gold-digging um, bosom broad who got by in life seducing wealthy male suitors. So pretty hilarious. Uh, I go on to speculate that perhaps Barbie was experiencing um, some symptoms of being mind-controlled by some nefarious government. Maybe she was going to infiltrate the hip-hop scene, was my imaginative speculation. Therefore, I showed another doll that I have. This one is for 15, ages 15 and up, it says on the packaging, because it's Chuck D. That's right. I have a uh, packaged black man in um, some nice plastic you know, packaging nailed to my, my wall. Um, so Chuck D watches over me. And I also have another toy because truly when you start thinking about the threat to us as humans, so not just as like this one subgroup or this other subgroup, you know, the divide and conquer way that our elite like to um, make us think about each other. I have a little image of another toy I got, the Borg. That's right. From Star Trek, the next generation, I have the Borg action figure on my wall as well because I like looking at things that make me think about what we're fighting for. And strangely enough, toys from Star Trek, they make me remember what we're fighting for. So that is... The posts, I do, oh, oh, that's right. I wanted to mention an acronym. I learned a new acronym. It's pretty cool. It's called DARVO. And so when you think about DARVO, it's not just like sexual abusers that can use DARVO. People that have psychological issues can use DARVO. Um, someone tweeted me this morning that they think maybe President 45 uses major DARVO techniques. And what DARVO is, oh, let me just read. Let me just read. Okay. Research shows that between 0.5% to 5% of the general U.S. population have narcissistic personality disorder in the U.S., with a greater prevalence in men than women. However, multitudes are affected by a controlling tactic that many narcissists use called DARVO. DARVO is an acronym that stands for Deny, Attack, and Reverse Victim and Offender. It describes a manipulative tactic often used by abusers to avoid taking responsibility for their actions and shift the blame onto their victims, explains Abigail Lev. Um, founder of Bay Area CBT Center and CBT Online. Narcissists and their diagnosed, or, oh, narcissists and those diagnosed with personality disorders are the ones who most often use DARVO in a psychologically abusive way. It impacts the physical, mental, and emotional health of the family members, friends, and colleagues who are victimized by it. DARVO allows abusers to control the narrative and avoid accountability for their behavior. Indeed. Well, <clears throat> that takes us to Friday, August 18th which is today, as I'm sitting here recording the review of the week, the last review of the week that I will be doing for quite some time. I will be gone for, I'm not entirely sure how long I'll be gone. I might even end up at Burning Man at some point. Uh, I'm going to make a bunch of different stops. I'm going to try and even get a book deal along the way, if that might be possible. Um, I'm already about 30 pages in, so I believe in a month I will have a kick-ass fucking manuscript won't tell you the title of it yet, but guess what? It's about Zoomtown. 
That's right. Missoula, Montana will play a starring role, just like an upcoming Wall Street Journal article. I think it may have posted today. I'm going to go find it. Um, hopefully, hopefully it's not behind a paywall. So that wraps it up for the review. Um, stay tuned. I'm going to be reading a book about, let's see, find the book. I think I'm going to read a book called Hanging the Sheriff. Yeah, that's right. Hanging the Sheriff, a biography of Henry Plummer by R.E. Mather and F.E. Boswell. So a reading from that book will be coming up. Stay tuned. Thank you for all of the support. Uh, I will still be posting at ZoomCron. It might just be different. It might be uh, my little Lego figure popping up different places around the country. So stay tuned. There will still be content created, maybe even a poem or two. We'll see what happens. Thanks. Okay, here we go. So before I get into the actual reading from Hanging the Sheriff, a biography of Henry Plummer, Let's take a quick look at Wikipedia, shall we? Okay. Henry Plummer, so 1832 to 1864, was a prospector, lawman, and outlaw in the American West in the 1850s and 60s, who was known to have killed several men. He was elected sheriff of Bannock, Montana in 1863 and served until 1864, during which period he was accused of being the leader of a road agent gang of outlaws known as the Innocents who preyed on shipments from Virginia City, Montana, to other areas. In response, some leaders in Virginia City formed the Vigilance Committee of Alder Gulch and began to take action against Plummer's gang, gaining confessions from a couple of men they arrested in early January 1864. On January 10, 1864, Plummer and two associates were arrested in Bannock by a company of the vigilantes and similar, summarily hanged. Plummer was given a posthumous trial in 1993, <laughs> which led to a mistrial. Interesting. The jury was split 6-6. We're going to pick up uh, just in the middle of the book. So page 70, this is a called A Brave New Prosecutor. And I actually think I may have met the uh, family member, uh, one of the family members of this guy's family. So Wilbur Sanders. Wilbur Sanders, a teetotaler who embarrassed his cousin Maddie by singing too loudly in church, had come west to serve as his uncle's secretary. He was not quiet, or he was not quite the social equal of the Edgertons, Sidney having been a congressman who had taken his wife to Washington to hobnob with political celebrities, and Mary being a sister to the founder of Oberlin College, which Sanders had not attended, though he did not mind letting people think he had. Sanders showed due respect for his uncle, recognizing him as the pathway to political success, and in turn, Edgerton recognized his nephew's potential, calling on him frequently for counsel and trusting important errands to him. On the morning of the day, Hosser and Langford were, pre were preparing to leave for Salt Lake, Salt Lake and Henry Tilden for Horse Prairie, Edgerton had summoned his secretary for a special mission. A cavalcade of bold riders on the best horses to be found in the country, Sanders reported, were galloping the streets of Bannock from one saloon to another, displaying their perfect horsemanship, and Plummer was among them. In Sanders' eyes, at least, it was no credit to the sheriff that he fit in so well with the flashy riders. Road agents were known for loving horses, riding them well, and stealing them. Since miners commonly requested Plummer to accompany them to a new silver strike to evalu evaluate the ore, promising, promising him a claim near the, near the discovery for his trouble, on seeing the party of horsemen, Edgerton promptly detected it might be an expedition to a silver mine and dispatched Sanders as an emissary to the group. As Sanders related, he looked across the street, saw Plummer sitting on his horse, and went over to ask where he was going. Plummer replied he was on his way to take possession of a herd of horses quartered by the Parrish Ranch on Blacktail Deer Creek. Parrish being near death and several citizens having 
Parrish being near death, oh, and several citizens having expressed a fear that his wife, a member of the local Indian tribe, might take his livestock and return with her people to the other side of the mountain. Gotcha. Sanders insisted he was certain the horsemen had other intentions, namely staking quartz claims, but Plummer answered he knew nothing about them. When Sanders persisted, Plummer said, All right, get your horse and come along, but adding he doubted there would be any claim staking done, which Sanders again refuted. The conversation continued on in the same vein until Plummer at last agreed if Sanders did not care to come along to stake a claim on his behalf should the opportunity arise. Satisfied he had carried out his uncle's wishes, Sanders returned to his office, but Edgerton soon appeared in the doorway with Francis Thompson and Leonard Gridley at his side and urged Sanders to catch up to, Plum to the Plummer party and ride along with them. I volunteered to do so at their request, he wrote, and I went for my blankets and revolver while they proceeded to find me a horse. When Sanders was ready to leave, he discovered his uncle had procured not a horse, but a diminutive mule that balked at climbing the slope of Cemetery Hill, much to the amusement of those who soon gathered in the street below to watch Gridley struggling to coax the pair to the summit. After half an hour, Sanders and Gridley's combined patience outlasted that of the mule and all reached the top, only to discover there was no trace of the Silver Party's trail. In the approaching darkness, Sanders traveled in the direction of the Rattlesnake Station, but when a snow squall contributed to the mule's unwillingness, he was forced to dismount and drive it ahead of him, the final eight miles. At the station, he found no news of the ten members of the plumber party. Accepting the invitation of the bartender, Red Yeager, he, to share the grass mattress spread before a fire burning on the hearth, Sanders, who conceded that silver fever made strange bedfellows, crawled in next to a suspected horse thief, Bill Bunton, and fell asleep. Though Parrish's doctor, who was sleeping in one corner, was too stupefied by intoxication to be disturbed, the others were wakened three times, twice by the boisterous arrival of Jack Gallagher and once by Gridley, whom Hattie had sent to rescue Sanders. Back at Edgerton's cabin, Sanders heard the tale of Tilden's holdup, and the pieces of the puzzle began to fall into place. Plummer had not been at the Rattlesnake Station on the previous night because he was on Horse Prairie robbing Henry Tilden. Within a matter of weeks, another robbery occurred. On its second day out in Virginia City, the Salt Lake Mail stage overtook a strange band of three men, each wearing a blue and green blanket entirely covering the body and a mask pulled over the head with holes cut for eyes and nose and mounted on and nose and mounted on a horse similarly disguised, blanketed from ears to tail, leaving only eyes, muzzle, and legs exposed. Though two of the passengers were relieved of a total of $500, the robbers missed the money in the mailbags as well as that on the driver, who had been commissioned sums by several persons. Those aboard suspected George Ives of being the ringleader. In addition to accumulating mining claims and worrying over the robberies, Edgerton was, at the time, burdened with the more important task of pushing for creation of a new territory in eastern Idaho. During the week before Christmas, he sent his nephew to Alder Gulch to enlist support. While Sanders was still there, a, a wounded grouse led a hunter to the frozen body of Nick Tybalt, a young man who had been missing for some time. Outraged citizens quickly banded together to arrest the suspects, and Sanders offered to prosecute them. The main suspect was George Ives, who had been part of the Stewart expedition to the Yellowstone, but now worked at boarding, worked at boarding horses, mules, and oxen teams that pulled the long supply trains to the gulch. He was a tall, blonde, good-looking young man and an excellent horseman, who owned a fine horse, though he had the uncouth habit of leading it behind him into every store or saloon he patronized. But when mounted on his steed, he presented an impressive sight, Sanders said, sitting his saddle like a swan on a billowy lake. Plummer had already stated that he suspected Ives of being responsible for the Salt Lake stage robbery, and Sanders, confident Ives was guilty in all counts, viewed the coming trial as a critical struggle between the forces of law and order and those of crime. 
Or, as he quite significantly added, if necessary, there would be order without law, a rather strange stance for a lawyer. The murder victim had disappeared after being sent to pick up a mule team from Ives, and when the corpse, which was badly pecked by magpies on the shoulders and back, was brought into Virginia in a wagon left on public view, those who examined it were incensed by signs that Tybalt had been dragged into a brush while still alive. Marks of a small lariat scarred his neck, and, sc and scraps of sagebrush were clasped in his left hand. Emotions ran high, both among those indignant over the crime and those clamoring for Ives' acquittal. The trial was held on the snowpack street of Nevada, where two large wagons were pulled, one to provide seats for the prisoner and his lawyers, the other for witnesses. Near the wagons, a blazing bonfire was built from a stack of a wood borrowed from a resident who had the bad luck of being absent at the time. Benches loaned from a nearby hurdy-gurdy hall were arranged in a neat semicircle around the fire to form a jury box, and a line of guards armed with shotguns separated the jurors from the nearly 1,000 onlookers who occasionally interrupted proceedings with suggestions and catcalls or simply wandered off when lawyers' speeches grew monotonous for a quick trip to a barbershop, restaurant, or saloon. Sanders did not win any friends on the opening day, combining legal jargon with high-flown language and speeches that just plain lasted too long, and calling Buzz Caven, Plummer's deputy in Virginia, a coward and belittling the list of jurors. Cavan presented because one happened to be a professional gambler. Sanders, therefore, had no desire to make their acquaintance. As assistant, Sanders accepted another lawyer mining in the area, Charles Bagg, whom he described as a stubby, hairy man of dilapidated garb, whose bootlegs did not have sufficient fiber to stand up, and into one of which he had vainly essayed to tuck one of the legs of his pantaloons. Whatever the hell that means. Though according to Francis Thompson, a staunch temperance man, Bagg had the great failing of being an infernal nuisance when he was drunk, <laughs> uh, which was all too frequently. The ragged little lawyer balanced the prosecution team in more ways than one. He and Sanders succeeded in getting one suspect, Long John, to testify that Tybalt had paid Ives his bill from a buckskin purse full of gold dust, then mounted one mule and rode off leading the other. For a moment, Ives stood watching him leave and then suggested that they kill him for his money. The group tossed a coin, <laughs> the, lot, the lot falling to Ives himself, who rode after Tybalt, called to him to turn around, since he thought it would be cowardly, to shoot him in the back, and fired hitting him in the head. Ives took the purse, Long John said, left the body where it lay, and brought the mules back to camp. The second witness Sanders might have used was not called upon, a Dr. Glick, whom Langford claims had knowledge that Ives belonged to an organized gang. Glick did testify for the defense later in the trials. Sanders wrote that he also had other witnesses who could have given information about Ives' connection to the stagecoach robbery, but he chose not to use them either, relying solely on Long John's testimony. The trial lasted three days, with prisoners Ives, Long John, and George Hilderman being bound in logging chains, locked up and guarded each night. One of the miners who spent a night on guard duty recorded the event in his diary, revealing the miners' wariness of listening to speeches and arguments between the attorneys. After pacing the heavy watches of the night away, morning dawned clear and pleasant, John Grannis wrote. The court came at an early hour and was called to order by Judge Byham. The lawyers were given until three o'clock to get through and submit the case to the jury. And the lawyers met their three o'clock deadline, the judge sending the jury off to a store to deliberate and leaving the audience to shift from one frozen foot to the other in the waning winter sunlight, unwilling to give up their places before hearing the verdict. Within half an hour, the jury returned with a written report, but the decision was not, was not unanimous. Uh, one juror felt he must vote his conscience, believing, though George Ives was probably guilty of other robberies, 
The prosecution had not proven him guilty of Tybalt's murder. Unwilling to permit a single juror to spoil his victory, Sanders jumped to the witness wagon and motioned that the assembled crowd ignore the lone dissenting vote and accept the decision of the majority of the jury. His motion carried. Next, he moved that Ives be hanged immediately, which also carried. Seeing that Sanders was in control of the crowd, Ives, though bound in chains, slowly made his way over to the prosecutor and took his hand, requesting him to put off the execution until morning. Before Sanders could answer, a guard who had been following events from a perch on the dirt roof of a cabin called down, Sanders, ask him how long he gave the Dutchman. But Sanders did not need the help of Beidler, the guard who stood a few inches shorter than the muzzle of his shotgun to make up his mind. He had already decided to proceed with the hanging, and he made a third motion, which also carried. Let the court take possession of Ives' property to pay the expenses of board for the three prisoners and the nearly 100 guards employed throughout the trial. When the defense lawyer protested it was bad enough to kill an innocent man without using his property to pay the expenses of his killers, Sanders responded it was not unusual for the defendants to pay costs after a death sentence. And if a lawyer was not aware of that fact, he should go to a law school instead of a law office. Ooh, burn. Yeah, that's a sick 1860s burn right there. Surrounded by guards, Ives was led to an unfinished log building and placed on a gum boot box under a dangling rope. As Beidler placed the noose around his neck, the judge asked him for final words. Just before the box was pushed from under him, Ives said, I am innocent of this crime. Alex Carter killed the Dutchman. Sanders, congratulated for his initiative and courage, was escorted back to Virginia under a large guard that remained with him throughout the entire week. The next day, Long John was set free in reward for his testimony, and the third prisoner, George Hilderman, whom Sanders described as an old, weak, foolish man, was sentenced to banishment on the grounds of being a conspirator to the murder. Sanders, informing the audience that it was the duty of any person finding him in the settlements of New York's of, of New Year's to shoot him on sight. <laughs> Sweet. On hearing his sentence, the old man broke down, protesting he had no way of leaving and did not know where to go, but the only response to his plea was a shout from someone in the crowd advising him to go to hell. That is a viable location I guess you can travel to. Hilderman, known in the area as the Great American Pie Biter, <laughs> had earned the title because of his huge teeth and broad jaws, which could spread wide enough to squeeze, squeeze in seven layers of apple pie. Langford added that the old man was somewhat imbecile, once having lost a bed after being tricked into biting into a, a layer of pies that still had tin plates inserted between them and not being able to ascertain why he was not successful in biting through the, the stack. Oh, that shit's funny. Uh, in his dilemma <clears throat> at being banished without a horse and supplies, Hilderman applied for help to Plummer. The sheriff furnished him with a pony and sufficient provisions to leave the area. At the conclusion of the trials, five men who concluded that prosecuting the criminal element of the community was going to be too slow and expensive met in the back room of a Virginia store to adopt a quicker and cheaper method of dispensing justice. Surrounded by darkness, the five members raised their hands as Sanders administered the oath of the newly formed Vigilance Committee, patterned after the San Francisco model, <laughs> interesting, swearing to be true to each other, to reveal no secrets, and to violate no laws of right. The appropriate atmosphere for the Formation of this committee had been set by some shocking news that had just reached Virginia City. The pack train of merchants, uh, the pack train of merchant Lloyd Magruder, which had left town early in the fall, had not arrived at its intended destination in the, in the Lewistown area. Some of Magruder's friends felt certain that he had been robbed and killed somewhere along the mountainous Indian Trail that wound its way to the western side of the Rockies. The main suspects were themselves members of the Magruder Party, the band of cutthroats Francis Thompson ushered into Bannock the previous summer. The resulting outrage aroused in, aroused in Virginia City over the suspected atrocity provided some additional backing for the vigilance movement. 
At the beginning of the Tybalt murder trial, due to the ambience of mob control pervading the proceedings, defense attorneys had dispatched George Lane to Bannock <clears throat> to Bannock to carry the news to Plummer. But Bannock had already heard about the unauthorized posse that had arrested the suspects and stood guard over the trial, and the story of their actions being augmented by rumors that the next intended victims were the law officers at Bannock. Accordingly, a road barrier had been set up outside Bannock, and Lane may not have been able to get through to Plummer. Even if his message did reach the sheriff, there may not have been sufficient time to ride to Alder Gulch before the trials ended. For whatever reason, Plummer did not interfere in the trials, leaving Sanders to carry the day. Interesting how a new prosecutor can come into a corrupt environment in Montana and start making some waves. Just interesting. History actually is fucking interesting. If you think history is fucking interesting like I do... I'm glad you tuned in. I'm glad you listened. And I hope to continue in some form reading stories, creating content. Of course, I'm going to you know, be creating content. Um, I'm just not sure what this next week will be bringing. So um, I do encourage you to stay tuned. It will be bringing something. I just don't know what it is. Sometimes that can be kind of exciting, right? I've been your host, Travis Williams Skink Matera. I will figure out how to end this with some kind of song. Maybe just one I already put out this week. Thank you for all the support. Truly, truly appreciate it. I'll be coming back again real soon.